Have you had your soup today? And the cold, crisp taste of Coke is so satisfying, it keeps me from eating something else that might really add those pounds. paints you as a small would-be pop singer as he describes it of little talent how do you react to that Bugliosi looks in the mirror every morning when he shaves and that's the only person in Bugliosi's world just him ask his wife she knows it all right welcome back Ladies and gentlemen to Cultish, entering the kingdom of the cults. And good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to their Cultish Theologian Smash-Up. We're here today to put the she in Bugliosi. <laughs> Did I get it? No, that was, well, I was going to do conspiracy. No, it would be conspiracy, Conspiracy theories. It shows you how my loop I am. Um, you, you haven't been practicing this for no, five I years? Haven't. Okay. No, I haven't. Okay, well, and so can we just talk for a second about how he was saying Bugliosi? Bugliosi? Bugliosi. But I'm not hearing the G when he was just talking Bugliosi. in the... Maybe hmm. if we were sophisticated, I, we would right. know yeah. how to I, say it. I think what I'm trying to say is that if we pronounce names wrong... It's because we read a book and yes. the book wasn't read to us. Yeah. So we anyway. might, but there, a lot of it I feel like I've got. Oh, yeah. Yes. Down. So we're here together for a fourth <laughs> mashup. Yeah. It's been four mashups. And uh, we're also joined by Andrew uh, over in Harriman, Utah. Uh, you were uh, with us via video, but now you're just with us via audio. We're having some weird audio issues because we're going to be talking about a lot of different things, including uh, LSD. <laughs> People are like, what? That actually has to do with the whole story behind Manson in the 60s, but something was going on with the audio where it sounded like some sort of Willy Wonka acid trip. Yeah. It was like, yo, 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 every mm -hmm. single time that you talk. So definitely very interesting. It was very appropriate. Yes. Um, so we are talking about a book that we've all gone through and it kind of made the rounds in 2020. There's an author by the name of Tom O'Neill. Oh, by the way, Andrew, how are you doing, man? I'm doing great, dude. I'm doing well. Awesome. I'm excited for this. I'm very, I know you're very excited for this as always. You've always done your own sleuthing as well, too. So uh, there's an author by the name of Tom O'Neill and he uh, appeared on the Joe Rogan Experience the first time I ever heard of him. And essentially the story is, is that he... Uh, was going to do a report for this magazine, and it was the 30th anniversary of the Manson murders, and so he actually uh, met up with Vincent Bugliosi, and he wanted to do an interview with him. He was really nice. Uh, Vincent Bugliosi wined and dined him, and they spent a couple hours going around Ciela Drive, all the different murder locations. By the way, uh, if we'll, we'll give you a, we'll give you a brief summary in a moment of the Manson murders and like what, why it became so popular. But we actually have a whole series on cultish where we kind of go into the official story of Manson. Uh, if you want to look at that, there's a six part series, I think in the summer of 2020, look up the, definitely look up those episodes. But, uh, so he looked at, so, uh, Tom O'Neill, he was talking with uh, Bugliosi. They spent all to all day to, uh, on a Sunday. And then 
uh, he, he was just getting the, all he was getting is everything he'd already heard from Helter Skelter and really all the, really the official story of it. And so finally he said he wasn't really getting anything fresh or new. And so he said, is there anything that you've, you said it's a journalist's Hail Mary, where he said, is there anything that you could tell me that you haven't told anyone else that I can even keep it off the record? I don't remember exactly what that was. But I don't think he says the specifics, but that became a, that be, that was a catalyst for him to start really questioning the official narratives because when he started researching uh, different documents, a lot of the what he was on finding was contradicting what was told in Helter Skelter. So, kind of bringing it in, just give me. Let's just jump in here. Like, what are some of your initial thoughts in the book, or maybe we could, for the beginning, like let's bring everyone into the Manson murders just really quickly in case anyone isn't. How would we sum up like what happened, Andrew? You you know uh, how would you sum that up? Yeah, I'd say there was a spirit of a, like a zeitgeist of the time with this hippie movement going on with the Vietnam War uh, in the late 60s going into the early 70s. And in Hollywood, the culmination of what happened was murders, right? And these murders kind of sparked a fear inside of mainstream Hollywood and even uh, Los Angeles in general uh, that this – it was like almost a culmination, the end of the hippie moment uh, f- fulfilled up in these murders – essentially the Tate LaBianca murders. So Sharon Tate, and then also the LaBianca murders. So, I mean, that, that's how I would summarize it. It was just the culmination of the hippie movement ending in a bloody uh, mess. Well, so this is something that I talked about earlier this year, which is that essentially whenever you have sexual revolution, it's followed by a lot of blood. And so I think the Manson murders were a real kind of like, moment where America's conscience was totally revealed, which was that like they had overthrown all sexual ethics that had been pretty standard for the past centuries in the nation. And then this massacre happened. And I think everybody kind of knew like, what is the fruit? You know, you'll remember um, if you know anything about the French revolution, the fruit of the French revolution was the bloodiest streets ever um and the fruit of the sexual revolution has been abortion uh but it was felt in the moment i think through the manson murders Mm. and so i've always thought the manson murders didn't make a ton of sense and switching gears a little bit my initial thought when you when we started reading the book was just that as somebody who has like read a lot and listened to a lot of true crime if it turns out like helter skelter is the true crime book like yeah. it's the most popular right. true crime book of, of all time. time. Yeah. Yes. And if you you can't say that you've read true crime if you haven't read Helter Skelter. It's just like one of those things. Um and I guess to find out that someone has done their research and is claiming that a lot, if not the majority of what's written in the most famous true crime book of all time is wrong, it makes me think like can we trust any reporting? <laughs> like, can I trust any of the true crime? Like, can I trust Dateline? Like, what if this this book is false, then what do we really like? Is it kind of hilarious and jokes on us that we call it like true crime? Yeah. Yeah. And so in summary, so what happened with the man submerged, why it became such a big thing primarily just because you have this, you know, this really beautiful blonde actress and that was betrayed by, um, yeah, by Sharon Tate, who was uh, was portrayed by Margaret Robbie in What's a Time in Hol- What's Upon a Time in Hollywood, and 
you know, you had Abigail Folger, who's the heiress to the coffee, the the, the heir to the Folger's coffee fortune. And you just had a, people that are kind of well-known. And also Hollywood was very t- close-knit uh, in the 1960s, kind of like everyone kind of knew everyone. So, I feel like it's still that way. Yeah. 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 But I think even a closer sort of knit sort of way. Yeah. And so essentially you have these followers. I mean, you had a couple of people, including uh, Susan Atkins, uh, and you had uh, Tex Watson and a couple of these people who just came over uh, on this night and they just brutally n- murdered these people. I mean, if you want to know the exact details, you can definitely look that up. But I mean, it, this was this is something that shocked the nation, but also it completely changed just the aspect of just that of just that time. So uh, that's basically the murders. And so uh, what ended up happening is that that was just a dark that was like the culmination, like the finality, like of the 1960s. That was like the cherry on top, which which I found fascinating. And it, it just um, so like going through, I'm just curious. And Andrew, you can jump in as well too. When you're kind of going through the stuff that Tom O'Neill was going through, what were some of the initial things in the book that kind of caught your attention in regards to like the official story of Manson versus what he was uncovering? I'm just curious because we were talking about that beforehand. It was a relief for me because I've never thought that the official story made sense. Yeah. Like Manson wasn't there that night. So wh- how, how is he being charged with murder? When that he didn't commit. Right. Um, and that that jump between like when you think of these murders, they're called the Manson murders. Yeah. He didn't lift a finger. And so I have never really been able to understand that and so mm-hmm. when i cracked this book open i was like great maybe i'll get some answers yeah um i'm thoroughly uh, maybe this is an unpopular opinion a hot take Ooh. but um i think charles manson is incredibly boring mm-hmm. um he is completely predictable in his unpredictability um and I honestly feel like if I met him in person, I would not be interested at all. (laughs) I don't know if I, I think he is like, he doesn't seem particularly smart or particularly charismatic. He says weird off the wall stuff. And I kind of get the impression that he's just a self-absorbed type that kind of just says stuff. Yeah. To, and just so if you guys are checking my credentials, I was a poetry major, so I know this person. <laughs> yeah. I know this personality type, <laughs> this person that just like says cool stuff, or just like weird uh, stuff. Yeah, like oh, have you ever? Th- oh, you know, like I just have all these thoughts, but it's like not totally like your thoughts, just like yeah. a little bit different than yeah, everyone yeah. else's thoughts. He reminds me, you know, that kid in the back of your like fifth grade class who pierced his ears with a pencil for attention. Mm-hmm. That yeah. is what Charles Manson reminds me of. Yeah, the stunts. Yeah, right. No, I mean, um, but yeah. So I guess I, I, uh, what this book offered for me was so much more interesting. (laughs) Um, And I think in reality, very little of the entire book has to do with Charles Manson himself. And I think, um, I think taking him out of the forefront made the case far more interesting um, to me. And like you said, it was like you said somewhere, there's almost it wasn't so much that I didn't, I didn't uh, find the 
helter skelter motive compelling as much as it, it just didn't it di- it seemed like something was missing well yeah let's describe the real quickly uh the helter skelter mode let's describe the real quick and andrew you can jump in as well too even though we can't see you you know we you're mm-hmm. still there with us in spirit or via audio <laughs> on she legends um, we talk over each other yeah so oh, okay. feel free to do that yeah oh, just gotcha. start talking and <laughs> right if what you're saying is more interesting i'll that. shut up yes yeah <laughs> so real quick i i am um, i agree with i agree with joy um i find charles manson to be that uh hobo hippie guru uh that just jumps off the train i don't know if you guys have a lot of experience speaking with some homeless people i've had many ex- experiences speaking with homeless people when I was a teenager just because I did really weird stuff but you'd find those those some some of them you could just listen to them for hours but they're talking about absolutely nothing I find Charles Manson is one of those types of people but the reason why he had these followers is because these people were on drugs and they found it to be extremely interesting to be extremely fringe but I like the the take that the the book has as well as in separating Manson from it where the typical helter skelter motive uh is shown to be more of a Hollywood-esque uh, motive brought into the story in order to uh, keep people captivated to a specific right. narrative. And I yeah. find that extremely interesting. A Hollywood murders, right, with a Hollywood narrative. Right. So I found that to be really interesting. And so what the Helter Skelter was from uh, was ascribed in the book and just from everything that goes, everything that I've read on Manson, you correct me if I'm wrong, is that an order to charge Manson with murder, they had to label him as a co-conspirator. So how does, like, how do you charge someone with a murder with someone who is actually not there presently uh, at the scene of the crime? So Bugliosi made the case that it was a Helter Skelter, that he was hearing messages when he was tripping on acid from the Beatles' White Album uh, of that he wanted to incite this race war. And essentially through, you know, manipulating his members, he got them to a point where he was putting these hallucinogenic drugs and LSD uh, in them where he get the, where they would do anything on command allegedly. And so because of that, he allegedly, he became, he used that to prove that um, he, Manson was a co-conspirator because they just killed, they were just robots. They just killed on command. And so it was definitely an interesting narrative, but the more you kind of go into this and I would, the book is called Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA, and the Secret History of the, of the 60s. When you start understanding the intricacies of what, what I found I found so fascinating about the book is, again, it's not focused around, around Manson, but it just goes into the real history of the 60s and really how people operated behind closed doors. I think, you know, one of the things, too, is that you look at today's social media and you look how everything now is public. You look at like the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trial, or you look mm-hmm. at uh, anything that's going on. In fact, even in the uh, 90s, during when uh, Michael Jordan was playing, he used to be extremely abusive towards his uh, basketball players. They had lost a game, and he would, do st- he would do stuff where he would essentially be assaulting them, if I remember. And, I mean, if, if someone had pulled out their phone and live-streamed it, believe right. me, it would have gone viral. People would have been tweeting about it. He might have had to go on an apology tour. He might have got... He probably would have the career that he had, the way that he was doing it. And it was just that culture. You think about everything, everything that happened with Bill Cosby. It's just that was the culture where stuff happened behind the scenes. And when you actually go into this book, you see a lot of aspects and really into who Bugliosi and like who he was. Like very extremely egotistical. And I think that's what actually Manson was referring to in that audio. Well, yeah, it's almost as though everyone involved in this was in 
Los Angeles for a reason. They are like the tropiest of tropes. <laughs> they are <laughs> they are like they're like characters that don't exist in real life. They exist in Los Angeles. <laughs> if we did like a t-shirt, I, I would really wanted to say the tropiest of tropes. <laughs> like the just, tropiest of tropes. The tropiest of tropes. <laughs> Well, and it, the whole uncovering this these programs that I'm sure we're going to talk about, Bluebird, Artichoke, blah, blah, blah. Um, it just makes me think, so 60 years from now, what are they going to be saying about what our government is up to now? Mm-hmm. Like this, what the book highlighted for me, not only did it, I, I've never understood why we're still talking about the Manson murders. Not really. Mm-hmm. Not only did the book help me understand that a little bit more. It really cemented my belief that Reagan was right when he said that the most terrifying words you can hear are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. Because at every step of the way, this is a story about government corruption from the police to the prosecutor to the CIA. This is a story about corruption. And I think we have this really like this view that... Well, I mean, people trust our government blindly, which is silly. Um, And it's like you either blindly trust them or you're a conspiracy theorist. You're like a a nutso. Mm -hmm. Um, But then when you read what they've done, it's like, (laughs) this is bad. When you read what they've done, that is not a secret. It's Mm -hmm. not a secret. By any stretch of the imagination. (laughs) Um, And what is documented Um, there was a moment in the book where they were talking about, um, just like in a flurry of, of damage control, they like got rid of all this and it's like, you're already caught. Like, Mm. pardon me, if you test it on human beings, can you not, like, can we arrange some sort of deal where you don't just burn all of that? (laughs) Like, can we, can we see what you found out at least? Like, you're still getting in trouble. Like, you're in trouble no matter what. And it's actually illegal for you to even burn the papers. So can you please just... I don't know. It made me... Maybe that's a little grim. But there was a part of me that was like, if you're going to test unethically on human beings, at least don't throw everything out the window when you get Mm. caught. Like, I don't know. I just... I mean, they didn't throw it all out. There's still... There's always a... What... I found it very interesting uh, in the book is he just was willing to look. Tom O'Neill was willing to look for that shred Mm -hmm. of left behind Mm -hmm. um, whatever, whether a audio recording or a document or Mm -hmm. finding someone who had photocopied a document back in the day. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know, it's sort of, it's, it, it, um, something that might be kind of foreign to us today is just this like uh, being a journalist used to really be a job yeah when you actually you, yeah when, and this is the thing too when you look at just everything's all about sound bites and talking points with today's media so jumping back to tom o'neill is that you know he started looking into mm-hmm. uh you know this manson what became you know i think a six-month project to write this article i think was it for us magazine variety magazine for like, premiere premiere it was and, for the 30th anniversary of the murder right. so in 1999 90s. Ni- yes 1999 so he just 
published this book in 2020. So this, what became this small six-month project, I believe, was ended up being a 20-year down the rabbit hole for him, just studying on every single aspect of Manson, just because he didn't, it's not like he was looking to go 20 years. Mm -mm. He just was trying, he didn't know what to do because everything that he was looking at didn't match up. And so I think one of the things that really became, uh, popped out to him, is just kind of, this is interesting, is that he was trying to seek out all the different celebrities at that time, people mm-hmm. like Jane Fonda, Jack Nicholson, uh, all these different people, and no one wanted to talk about it. They did not it. want to talk, yeah. And he goes, that just seemed kind of, that, that seemed kind of oddball to him. But, you know, it's interesting too, because, you know, he mentions throughout the book a lot of things that, you know, it's like, oh, this is a matchup, this is a matchup. And just from my perspective, I remember putting the Manson series together that we did, and we based it off the one, uh, just Manson by Jeff Gwynn, which mm-hmm. is also an excellent mm-hmm. book. But Andrew, I don't know but if you can tell me about this, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts too, but I remember what made, was really interesting is the amount of time that Manson spent in prison. It's, it seems actually rather odd, because when you actually look at the stuff that he did, it was all petty crimes. Yeah. This is something that... You know, isn't he wasn't doing like major felon? He wasn't doing like major felonies. I mean, well, there was one pretty what? major. Um, he was caught raping that. Yeah. Boy. That boy. Yeah, that was that. really the. But it, it, yeah, the rest but it, of, aside from, of, aside from that, I mean, it was just it was all. Like he grew small, up in jail. He spent yeah. the majority of his life right. in jail, mm-hmm. and the majority of the charges were like petty theft and things like that. And then right. yeah, there's that one that yeah. he should have been put to death for. But right, yeah. So I mean, that was the one thing that just caught that could have solved a lot of problems, yeah. right? Nah, um, yes. You know, and you know, it's interesting because back then, crazy. They actually were still putting people to death in our country. Yeah. <laughs> they were like, that was actually a sentence that you could actually get instead of just mm. s- sitting on death row for, for whoever. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. What are some yeah. things, Andrew, in your research that kind of like, stuck out to you? I mean, you're, you're reading Jeff Gwynn's book, and I'm thinking what's funny too is that towards the end of the book, I don't know if you all caught it, there's a point where he's in a fight. Bugliosi's kind of like going back because eventually, um, so initially, Bugliosi's like happy and whining and dining him. But as soon as he realized that Tom O'Neill's a threat because he's uncovering all these things that contradict the official narrative, he starts threatening uh, Tom O'Neill that he's going to bring him down. He's going to ruin his life. And it's just, and just really being uh, abrasive. Mm-hmm. But at one point, he actually says, what are you going to do now, super sleuth? Is that what you're going to do? <laughs> so he actually calls Tom O'Neill oh, wow. a super sleuth. So I was like, oh, so from one super sleuth to another. But... Uh, yeah, yeah. Just like reading this book, I you know from his vantage point and kind of going through our initial research, like what were things that kind of stuck out to you just initially that seemed like yeah. okay, well, this is kind of off. What what I like about uh, Tom O'Neill and what he does is he gives you the facts, right? And he tries not to have uh, uh, what is the word like suspicion brought into it or trying to guess something that you don't actually have proof for. So they do do circumstantial evidence, trying to link pieces of evidence together. But um, he tries to avoid, there's a word, speculation, right? right? So talking about Charles Manson's early life, we do find it very interesting that he was in federal prison the whole time, mm-hmm. right? He got out of prison until he was 32 years old, and he first started going to prison in his early teens. Went from a boy's home, from the boy's home to prison, a federal prison to federal prison to federal prison. He didn't get out until uh, 1967, March 21st in L.A. County. And what's interesting, though, about it that Tom O'Neill makes this point is early in his life, 
he was put in prison very quickly and continued to be in prison. And uh, Joy mentioned this earlier, which we can probably get into later, but she mentioned how there was documents that were destroyed. Uh, these documents were written letters or documents in general for MK Ultra, which was a test that was being done on United States citizens without their knowledge. And uh, what's what's interesting about that is that these tests were actually done on people in federal prisons. Manson right. actually um, talks about people in the federal prisons that were doctors that talked to him. So there's circumstantial evidence thinking that possibly Manson could have ties to MK Ultra because there's one doctor in his last name that's escaping me uh, that was actually found by Tom O'Neill to be someone who actually did do some experiments for MK Ultra. But again, it's speculative. It's not uh, actual factual evidence. But what's most interesting is from the time of 1967 through 1968, uh, Charles Manson, after he was released from Terminal Island Federal Prison in L.A. County, he was never put back in prison for violating his parole or doing crimes and being put in prison. Right. He mm -hmm. got off scotch free, which is something very interesting to think about because he knew a man who was his parole officer named Roger Smith. Right. So what I'm what I'm trying to get at here is what's very interesting to me is that. Someone who was constantly placed in prison for doing things that he should not be doing. Uh, well, how come he escapes prison? Not escapes. I don't know why I'm using that word. How come he gets out of prison later, violates parole for two years of his life during the, the time all of these tests are taking place on citizens? But for some reason, he has like an immunity card, a get, get out of jail free card for the next two years. Right. You know, I find that to be very, very interesting. We can go dive into that stuff more, but mm. really interesting to me. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. And I think also, like, one of the things, too, when you actually look about when you when he got out of prison, I mean, the idea is that he, he got out right around the time during the Summer of Love, and that's when he really started the Manson family. And supposedly, you know, the official story would say that, okay, well, he is always known for manipulating people, and I think there, there's levels in which you can say, yes, that was definitely true. I mean, but... We can all imagine the the guy. Yeah. Speaking of tropes. <laughs> that is in and out of jail his whole life in out of jail. that in somehow out of jail. knows how to con the con man, the street smarts guy. Um, he's not like you and me. He's mm -hmm. he ha there's something about him. He doesn't necessarily care for maybe like social consequences. Like we can all that's him. That's, yeah. He's the guy. <laughs> right. So. During this time, if you really think about it, though, I mean, he was just out of jail in a very short amount of time. It was roughly around, I think it was under two years, where he gets out of jail. You know, he starts understanding, seeing the different people are using the, all the different drugs. And that is definitely was a drug culture around that time for sure. Mm -hmm. But during this time, this is when he gathers together the family. They end up accumulating at the film at uh, Spawn Ranch, where they would do movie films there. And that's where the family resided. And that's where... Manson realized that he could take his manipulation to the next level by getting the, uh, his different his followers to basically take acid and LSD and would have them go on these different trips and there's the whole, I mean there's all they do all sorts of different crazy things there but in that very short amount of time he could get everyone individually just to kill blindly on command and what what he goes into the book especially uh, chapter eleven is just insane I, I probably listened to that on audible like t like two or three times and it's 
one of those things you're like, okay, you know, initially like, not the government wouldn't do that, but then you look at what happened like the last two years during COVID, I mean, the last, you know, the last two years, you know, just when, when COVID started, you're like, yeah, they just, probably did do something like that. Yeah. Social conditioning for sure. Yeah. That the last few years mm-hmm. makes you realize just how uh, susceptible we are to mm-hmm. being told what to do. Right. So it's, in, yeah. So in the very, so in the Without very, LSD. right. So the official, <laughs> the, so the official narrative is that part of them being able to kill on command was, was Manson being allowing, having them take these LSD and, and hallucinogens. And that was part of what he did to get them to kill on, just kill blindly on command. And this is something he learned really how to do from scratch in two years along with forming this cult right and so what's interesting though is that one in the book when he talks about when the government was doing these different experiments on uh mind control and the mk ultra is that they were illegally uh had to do with the nerve the ner- they're going against the nerve code where people were being experimented against their will in many different cases in fact one of the persons is a documented fact is a uh, whitey bulger who is a criminal mm-hmm. and Johnny Depp? Speaking of Johnny Depp, yeah, uh, he he portrayed him in the movie I think Black Mass, and I never I never saw the film, but I know he's a very famous uh, mobster. But he was they, he was part of that as well too, mm-hmm. uh, on some level. So in the very same time, where the government is experimenting on kill people, to kill on command almost unconsciously, and it's always like the government starts with good intentions. And then this things go. Imagine that they always, it always goes off kilter. So this started. It started as a program to help start researching when American soldiers would get captured behind enemy lines, and how can we study how other countries are what they're doing to break soldiers or get them or getting soldiers to to say things that aren't true. Essentially, how do we protect them from brainwashing? So it went from that to experimenting on all sorts of people to be able to kill on command, which is exactly what happened during the Manson murders. So yeah. what he portrays there, some, go ahead, Andrew. Can I put some legs behind what you're yeah, talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So what Jerry's referring to in general right now is MK ultra, but this consists of three different phases, right? So uh, as soon as world war two ended and we get thrusted into uh, the cold war a little bit later, uh, LES, LSD research began uh, at the end of World War II because American intelligence was learning that the USSR was developing programs, right, to influence human behavior. So what the United States then wanted to do was to uh, try to stop these things from happening. Project Bluebird uh, consisted from 1948 to 1949 by testing on human subjects, and we'll get into that. And so uh, in Artichoke 1949 through 1952, which is the next project, uh, Operation Bluebird morphed into that, which was a search for an all-purpose truth serum, right? And then from that, we actually have the human testing phase, and this was called Operation Midnight Climax, which went from 1953 to 1964. Uh, Judge Hunter White, or George Hunter White, was the CIA head honcho pretty much of this, and Operation Climax, this is how they would start the studies, all right? They had locations of these safe houses in San Francisco, New York, L.A., which were apartments and houses that kind of looked like brothels where people would be experimented on. They called... Uh, random men just johns so the united states government this is these are things that you can look up there's actual cia uh, declassified documents so what i'm saying here is actual fact this is not um something that's a conspiracy this is actually something that happened uh hookers were hired by the united states government for a hundred dollars and they would hire the 
they would hire them to lure these Johns into these brothels, essentially, and they would drug the, the men either by aerosol spray, the hookers would be in a different uh, room and, and use the spray. And then they would have, uh, let's put earmuffs on if there's any children. And if there are any children, if your parents, uh, sorry, maybe we should put like a disclaimer at the beginning of this, but here's the disclaimer, uh, earmuffs or just okay. uh, turn it down. I don't earmuffs. know. Uh, but, uh, but the, the hookers then would have sex with these Johns. And then after they would have sex with them, they would ask them questions about their jobs. And they would, they found that after sex, men were more likely to talk about a lot of different things. But uh, there was a man, George Hunter, he actually would have a one-way mirror inside these uh, buildings where he would sit and watch what was going on. Anyways, this is part of the experiments that the United States government was doing on citizens unknowingly. Okay. And then this morphs into more of MK, MK Ultra was going on typically during 1952 to 1970s. And Project MK Ultra's goal was to create hypno-programmed assassins, also known as yeah. Manchurian candidates. Right. So uh, just trying to get some legs on essentially to what Jerry's talking about here, just mm -hmm. so we can get a good understanding. And one of the most popular studies that was going on for MK Ultra was taking place in San Francisco, where Charles Manson was actually residing. Because when he got out of prison in, in L.A. County, he went where? He went to Berkeley, California, in violation of his parole, number one. Uh, but he never was sent back to, to prison. Uh, anyways, his parole officer, Roger Smith, then was working at a place because uh, I'm trying to bring the connections here just for people's brains to what yeah, the book right. is about. He ended up going. Uh, Roger Smith, the parole officer, was also doing a Ph.D. program on a federal government study on drugs and how it works with uh, felons and things of that nature. He was working out of an office in the Height Ashbury Free Medical Clinic. All right. In the Height uh, Ashbury Free Medical Clinic was opened in June 1967. Uh, Manson would have been there a little bit after June. And so Manson would be actually coming into the Height Ashbury Free Medical Clinic. It's known that people knew who he was. And actually, he would have like four or five women with him. While the while he was in the Height Ashbury Free Medical Clinic, the women would be getting like STD checks and things of that nature. But the most interesting connection that is given in this book, I find, is that there was a man named Louis Jolly West who also had an office in this clinic. And he was performing tests uh, essentially on some of the patients in the clinic, but he was also sending them right around the corner on Franklin Street to one of his little brothels. It's a little bit different than Operation Climax. It was a different uh, uh, test, but it was essentially the same exact thing where they were actually drugging people again, and they were uh, doing some pretty intense things to them, getting them to open up and things of that nature. But I... I I don't know if you want to go more into Jolly West and well, who he was, but well, these, are, these yeah. are the connections, essentially. Yeah, well, one of the connections, I'll let you jump in a second, too, Joy. Just one thing that pops in my <clears throat> mind as well, too, Andrew, you talking about the earmuffs moment, is that yeah. what the government was orchestrating to uh, lure these men so they could experiment on them, I mean, that was pretty much Charlie's recruitment tactic for the family. I mean, the women would go out. Um, you know, would be sort of be promiscuous with trying to you know, flirt with men. And that's when you hear the initial connection. I forget what members of the family, they met up with Terry Melcher and they, he invited them to their house for quote unquote milk and cookies. So right. like you see that connection there. And so the official story is just kind of like all this stuff came together by hearsay, which is, it, I mean, the story in and of itself, if everything else with the official story is true, it's still fascinating. But yeah. there's a lot of these variables in play that isn't hearsay. I mean, the thing I appreciate so much about Tom O'Neill is that 
he's doing what we always talk about is gathering independent lines of testimony and witness. And he's very distinct in both. If you listen to any of his interviews and really in the book, you know, especially his footnotes, you know, it's, he makes it clear to know, to, to, to differentiate between what is fact um, of what he's been able to gather and what's hearsay. Right. And so um, kind of what we're talking about now is those connections between the connections between Manson and those scientists that were doing research on psychedelics and sex and mind control that and <laughs> they were all connecting at Haight-Ashbury, uh, the free medical clinic. And um, and so basically he is not there is a there is a really, truly an amazing amount of information in this book that is absolutely substantiated um, with documentation, with through interview, through eyewitness testimony. Um, and then it's almost kind of like the so the mystery still for him is not that he has conclusively solved that Manson was a part of MK Ultra, but his point is that Manson got out of jail. He'd been in jail almost his entire life. We're talking about a guy who at one point he even makes a comment about just even how literate Manson was. You're talking about someone that has not lived a normal life. And all of a sudden, um, within a relatively short period of time, he is regularly coming into contact with scientists who are doing research on mind control, LSD specifically, and sex. And then all of a sudden... He knows how to manipulate people using sex and LSD to commit murders. Right. Well, and the argument against him is that he essentially had mind controlled assassins. So he the argument is that he successfully did what the CIA had been in, in under two years what the CIA had spent how many years trying to figure out and execute, but Charles Manson did it mm. in a year and a half. Right. With no help at all. What? Someone who had been <laughs> right. in jail his entire life, <laughs> right. just all of a sudden with no instruction. Right. Um, and yet coming into contact with people who were actually studying right. this stuff. And um, then he he gets put in jail for doing what they were trying to do. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> ultimately, he gets put in jail. But the interesting thing, as Andrew pointed out earlier, is that there was a period of time where no matter what he did, he absolutely did not go to jail. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so not only that, I mean, so when you look at all these experiments that were going on, um, and one of the things that they, which, which uh, Tom O'Neill goes into, is that everyone would react differently to the LSD. I mean, some people would react to, you know, a small amount. Some people would need more of an amount. And so they, ha- it really kind of varied on the person. The same way how one person can have a couple of beers and be fine, another person can have, you know, one glass of wine and just can be. It's just their physiology, like they can't handle it. Right. So. To do all of a sudden, you know, every single person from Susan Atkins to Tex Watson to everyone involved in the murders, they all have different, you know, physiologies. So to get all these people distinctly uh, from, you know, to be able to just kill on command just like that. I mean, kind of when you actually go into the complexities of what they were doing, when it just, you have to read the book. I mean, honestly, especially that chapter, because you realize that what the government our government was doing 
for the longest time. I mean, there, there's a moment where in the book where it talks about they, they took three uh, different people, they put them into this room, and I think they removed part of their, this is, again, the earmuffs, this is kind of graphic, but if I remember correctly, they removed part of their skull, and they wanted to see if they could program them to actually, sta- and they gave them knives to see if mm-hmm. they could actually program them to stab each other, and when that didn't work, they actually killed them. Like, this is like, it's Nazi stuff. This yeah. human experimentation is just absolutely criminal. Which, it's one of those things, I think, also, like, from a biblical worldview, you know, I think so many times when you look at the stories that we've been told specifically, like, in World War II, how, you know, the Americans are completely, you know, we're completely, a romant- it's totally romanticized, and then and the Nazis are definitive, everything's white hat and black hat, mm-hmm. when you look that. The reality is like all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And so we think oh, also when we look at, you know, uh, you know, you look at Auschwitz and these places over there, like, oh, that's really, really bad. But over here in America, we're fine. We're, we're totally, we have the white picket fence. Yeah. You know, America always means the best for we us. We specifically got obsessed with LSD because we were like the Soviet Union is using it to whatever. We heard rumors. We didn't actually know for sure that it was happening. And... We always, it's like the space race, but with drugs, we like just always want to do what Russia's doing. And so we're like, they're our enemy. We better know what they're up to. Like you, you know, you should know what your enemy is doing. And then because they're the bad guys. So we don't want them to use that against us. And then we were like, oh, let's, let's get a pharmaceutical company in Indiana to make as much LSD, which also Manson always seemed to have as much LSD as he possibly could need, despite being a poor criminal um but yeah we we looked over and we were like those guys are bad we need to make sure we know what they're up to and then we we're like let's just do what they're doing right <laughs> there's yeah. some very weird um uh yeah there's there's an interesting line of thought there right. which i guess is that if america does it it's okay <laughs> yeah and did you guys have any thoughts i had andrew yeah what, yeah I was, what yeah, are you thinking, thinking about it very specifically there's three different hearings that actually happened uh, where the information about MK Ultra was disclosed to the public. And uh, it was sparked by a 1974 report in the New York Times that the CIA was doing illegal domestic activities. Then the, then out came the Rockefeller Commission hearings. Then from there, the church hearings. The church uh, committee found that MK Ultra had caused the deaths of at least two American citizens. One was Frank Olson. I don't know if you guys remember the story about him, but he was a mm-hmm. contracted by the military. He was a, a scientist who was unwilling, unwittingly dosed with LSD at a small agency. Uh, eventually, he fell out of a window. That was the story, but it was later to believe that someone actually pushed him out of the window because he was about to be a whistleblower on MK Ultra for what happened to him. But other than that, you can go to the senators Ted Kennedy and Daniel Enway hearings, and this is this is what's really intense. It said this. This is a 1977 report, and I'm quoting it from. Uh, the hearings itself, it says it revealed that CIA's NK Ultra project had subjected 7,000 servicemen and women. Uh, they had been used as guinea pigs, along with many thousands of unsuspecting civilians, including children and prisoners. In some cases, the diabolical experiments resulted in permanently disabling its subjects. So talking about essentially, well, if America does it, it sounds like it's okay, you know, but what's going on here is they're literally doing these things on their own citizens right. in- and Sid Gottlieb and Helms, which I mentioned earlier, uh, they didn't get anything. Nothing happened to them for this. Nothing happened to them at all. They they pled for immunity in order to give up the information. They destroyed many, many of their documents. But it's, what's cool is Tom O'Neill found a bunch of handwritten letters uh, 
but it's, it's, it's very interesting to see, you know, what was going on in America at that time behind the scenes, you know? Uh, I mean, this is stuff that you can go look up yourself. Yeah, right. It's, it's, it's very eye-opening to me, to say the least. Well, and um, you mentioned Gottlieb. He was basically, I guess you could consider him like the father of MK Ultra. And interestingly right. enough, he was, we mentioned a guy earlier, uh, last name West. People call him Jolly because he had, that was his middle name, right? But it's like yeah. smelt, it's spelled weird. He was also large. Right. <laughs> but anyway, so uh, Tom O'Neill discovers that that the father of MK Ultra was actually the handler of West who was in regular contact with Charles Manson. That's like proven. Yes. It's yeah. Not speculation. Yes. <laughs> no, definitely. And I think also Andrew and you, you guys can jump in as well too is that there's so many things like I said if this just if if the official story of Helter Skelter is indeed is true. It still is incredibly fascinating, and it's definitely a set its mark in American history. Now, a government—I mean, the government always is always great at never letting a crisis go to waste. I mean, they can always manufacture crisis, but even when crises come out of the blue, out of a vacuum, mm-hmm. they'll definitely exploit that as well too. So you know, wh- whatever it is, whether it's a mass shooting or some sort of natural disaster, whatever it is, that's just—it's just what a government loves doing. A cold. You know, Sorry. oh yeah, <laughs> um, but yeah. So there were a lot of things going on in the '60s, especially the narrative that Manson wanted to incite a race war. Um, and so you do. I mean, prior to, a year prior to the murders on April fourth, uh, nineteen sixty-eight, was when Martin Luther King was assassinated. So. I mean, you talk about the the culmination of the 60s and everything going on, with the racial tensions and equal rights. Then you also had, you know, I think it's one of the chapters, too, where they go into the whole history behind uh, the Black Panthers. And, yeah. that, and, and, and that was that was they were very, very active, too, in, in San Francisco. Yeah. And so here you have someone. The story is and this is also on the cusp of the Vietnam War, where uh, they are really not liking the anti- the government's not liking all the anti-war demonstrations and all the people that are protesting them are all these wonderful peace-loving hippies and man it and then it's the the book describes it where the government is sending informants uh into uh the black panther groups to compromise them so to get them to turn on each other mm-hmm. and then you know the byproduct of what happened after the Manson murders is that everyone saw, you know, Charlie, this, uh, you know, short little hippie guy who is, you know, scaring everyone with a, with a Nazi sign etched over his forehead and everything that happened in the trial and how the girls are going into the court, just singing. And it, it struck horror in the people. So all of a sudden in the same way, at like when 9-11 happened, you'd see like the buildings falling down. I remember like going around a tall building and being like, Oh my gosh, you know, like right after that happened. I mean, everyone saw, the anyone who is a peace-loving hippie, they they, they feared them, so they're yeah. no longer revered. So it it had a lot. I mean, the Manson killings had a lot of influence, even even in the public perception of the Vietnam War, but also those protesting it as well too. Right. Yeah, there were definitely uh, benefits for sort of, I guess, um, the powers that be determined that they're were benefits for the overall culture 
of the United States. They felt like the the helter skelter narrative uh, produced distrust in people you should distrust was sort of the idea, and that um, that in a way that was that well. It, they certainly didn't waste the opportunity mm-hmm. for social control to 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 basically say this group bad, this group mm-hmm. good, <laughs> yeah, um, and just to create so so the fa- so the narrative that was presented in the prosecution of Manson and the family, uh, it was helpful for mm-hmm. the narrative that was trying to be pushed right at the time. Certainly, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, Andrew, what do you, do you have any thoughts on that? You know, kind of blows my mind a little bit, guys. I want to I want to know what you guys think about this. So es- essentially what we hear of Manson is that he essentially created his own Manchurian candidates, right? His own hypno programmed assassins. But what we got to remember, too, about this time in the narrative in the 60s is they don't know about MK Ultra yet. Right. Right. But then Bugliosi or however Manson even said it in that <laughs> original clip, <laughs> I don't even know if I'm saying it right anymore. But um, but they didn't even no one even knew about that. Yet, so what I find extremely interesting is that Bugliosi pretty much talks about MK Ultra through Charles Manson, even though the narrative isn't publicly disclosed to uh, the you know the citizens of the United States, with the CA actually doing it to them, right? So I, I, what I see is um like a scapegoat in a sense that no, the CA is not doing this to the citizens. Actually, what's going on is Charles Manson did it to these people. How did how did Bugliosi come up? with the same MK Ultra with Charles Manson when the CIA was already doing it in secret. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. That? I think that's very compelling. <laughs> I think that's very, yeah, it's very compelling. The idea that Charles Manson and people like him are the danger. Not, the U S government is the hero. Yeah. <laughs> they are in, they are into just the, 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 they're, they're the knight in shining armor. And you think about it too, like Bugliosi, he's like a, he's like a patron saint in the true crime world and in the book it shows you a side of him that's like oh wow mm-hmm. and what's interesting is the premise and i don't know the details of it and Andrew, you can let me know if you if you remember exactly but according to the documents that tom o'neill had really pulled up it's a show that even prior to the manson case that uh bugliosi was compromised and mm-hmm. so because of that that's part of the reason for selecting him specifically to do this case. And then as a reward for him, you know, getting everyone to buy this official narrative was, um, buying this official narrative. So it was for him to be the author of the number one true crime selling, their number one selling uh, true crime story of all time. So there's just, there's so many layers to this and, I think what's interesting is the the book really is not about Manson a whole lot. Mm-mm. It's about all these in, intricacies and side characters. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and so it's one of those things too when you when you're reading through it. And I remember reading just a little bit of Helter Skelter and, and just a compilation of different books doing to the man looking at the official story of Manson. But now when you're looking at this, mm-hmm. it, it's one of those things where you know I was listening to to certain. Uh, podcast on um, with Tom O'Neill and all these everyone who's talking who's interviewing him said after they read this book they felt it just set uh, this precedent like well what else have they lied about and it set a precedent to go down so many other rabbit holes and so so, yeah yeah Yeah, I think um, my takeaway 
and I was kind of talking with you guys about this earlier. My takeaway is that um, you're talking about a large group of people um, that were just every step of the way unwilling to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, you know, maybe in some instances that would have meant um, losing your job or having to fight. It actually took, strangely enough, it took 30 years to find someone that was willing to basically sacrifice everything right. to do the right thing. Yeah. Um, and uh, that b- ended up borderlining on an obsession. Um, and I mean, a lot of it is because when it comes to the law, it's so important to do the right thing in a timely manner. Um, and uh, because of evidence and the way that memories work and the way that uh, uh, physical evidence decays and it's like there are there are things that will remain a mystery by Tom O'Neill's own admission. There are things that will just always be a mystery about this case. Um, and, and to me, it, the the huge takeaway is just how important it is for people who work in law enforcement or whose job it is to protect the law um, or for people that are victims or for people that are criminals is that it's important to do the right thing as soon as you possibly can. Right. Um, And this story is basically, uh, it's not a story about Charles Manson. He's really just kind of a secondary character to a lot of other people. Um, but it is really just a story of a lot of people doing the wrong thing um, for selfish reasons. Um, and it took place in this kind of just, I don't know, it's a very, it took place in a very interesting setting, California during that time. You're talking about even how, like, they all existed. Hate Ashbury, the Black Panthers, Charles Manson, mm-hmm. Hollywood. Mm-hmm. It was all in this one Bubble. place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they were all doing the wrong thing. Yeah. And, and there was horrific murder because of it. Mm-hmm. And then you get to the point where um, you're trying to tell the story of these victims or... Uh, in terms of even just prosecuting to actually receive actual legal justice requires you to do the right thing quickly. Um, and I don't know, it was just my, my, <laughs> my major takeaway. And I, I am really, I, I, maybe it sounds weird, but in a way as a true crime lover, I am grateful for Tom O'Neill and it sort of re-inspires thoughts um for me of just like journalism and what that career used to be and how journalism actually used to be like a truth seeking Mm. job. Mm -hmm. Um, And which means that it's important, Mm -hmm. right? It's important that we have truth seekers out there. I don't know. I just, these are just some thoughts of mine, but. (laughs) No, I think you're right. And the the freedom of the press as well to present the information without it being corrupted is, is a, a staunchly American concept that i would say has like a biblical precedence right like the yeah. two to three lines of testimony and that's what's going on here is we're trying to get information that's not corrupted by essentially uh the cia and that was ex- that was something extremely hard to do back then because of what was going on with mk ultra and the tests of the mind control especially in that location like you talked about uh bugliosi of uh, essentially being placed as prosecutor for a specific reason to bring about that narrative. Do you guys remember the story about uh, Jimmy Shaver? 
in the Jolly yeah. West connection. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Man. Why don't we do this? Because we've, we've gone about, do you want to kind of carry that over into part? Let's carry that over into part uh, two, because I feel like there's levels in which we've kind of jumped around a little bit. Yeah. But I think this is, a, again, the book that we're talking about is uh, by Tom O'Neill, uh, Chaos, Charles Manson, the CA, and the Secret History of the 60s. Definitely a fascinating read. And we're kind of tra- we're discussing unraveling unraveling that definitely fascinating discussion. So if you enjoyed the first part of this uh, journey down the rabbit hole, with as we uh, or actually our investigative unit, at least yours could be the she the CIA the CIA. <laughs> yes, I like it. Oh no, I love it. Um, yeah, 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 but but anyways, uh, it's appropriate. Yeah. It's, it's appropriate, <laughs> definitely. So if you enjoyed uh, this fun uh, episode down the rabbit hole, I uh, hope you enjoyed it. And uh, as always, a program like this cannot continue without your support. So if you feel led to donate, you can go to the cultishow.com, go to the donate tab. You can donate one time or monthly. All that being said, uh, we'll talk to you next time on Cultish, where we enter into uh, the kingdom of the cults. Talk to you guys soon. See you guys next week. Yeah.